Let's pray. Father, thank you that we're able to be here again together tonight. And oh, Father, we, we pray that you'll keep teaching us out of your word. Lord, we, we want to really know that your Holy Spirit is ingraining the truth on our hearts. Lord, that your truth becomes part of us. Lord, without your truth, we can't be free. Lord, without your truth, we have no idea what you've given us a permission to do. And yet, Lord, as soon as we know you've said we can do something, then, Lord, we know that you'll empower us to do it and we can go for it. So, Father, just show us what to be going for. Lord, just keep teaching us. Lord, just keep speaking us to us out of your word in power. Father, may Jesus be very near tonight. Lord, may we be very aware of his presence with us. Lord, bless us now, we ask, in his name. Amen. Amen. Right, well, we're continuing uh, our church life series, and uh, you'll remember last time we dealt with commitment and membership. And uh, you'll remember that we, we saw that the nature of membership was that the early church practiced no membership. I mean, you didn't join the church and get your name down on something or sign a commitment form or all this, this sort of rubbish. It was the membership of an arm to a body. You know, we saw that arms and legs are members of the body. It's an organic union being part of a fellowship because God has placed you there. And we saw that that was the nature of being part of a particular church. And that we saw that commitment, true commitment to the church that you're part of, comes out of that. And we saw that commitment isn't a question of pressurising people. It's not a question of chasing them up to make sure they're going to all the meetings or anything like that. Commitment is a question. If you want to be there, you'll be there. And you remember I said, if there's a good film on telly, if that appeals to you more than being with the family, stay home and watch the telly. No problem, you know, and we'll be praying that God will sort you out. But we won't pressure you. Can you see? There's no point pressuring people. And so we saw that, that membership is a question of kind of being a member in the way that an arm is a member of the body. And we're on a very similar theme tonight. So we've got to build on this a bit more. And we're going to look at the dynamic behind the life of a church. You know, what is it that makes a church tick? And that what we're going to be looking at tonight is body life, what I'm calling body life. Or for all you Olivia Newton-John fans, a bit of body talk, get you, all right? Okay, that's what we're into tonight. Now, let, let's tie this up with what we were seeing last week about membership. Go to 1 Corinthians 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And you hear a lot of talk in Christian circles about body ministry and body this and body that. So we better have a look at it. And uh, 1 Corinthians 12, and first of all we'll read verse 12 and 13. Paul says, For just as the body is one and has many members, see members, part of a body, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For by one spirit we were all baptised into one body, Jew or Greek, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of the one spirit. And then go down into verse 27. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And so we're seeing that tonight it's still body, body, body. We've got to build on this theme a little bit more. Now the verses in between, verse 14 down to verse 26, are tremendously important. We'll be back to them later on in this study. 
But what I want to try and do is to get across to you the, 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 the kind of the fundamentals of what this body life or church life is all about. And that there are certain things that when you understand why Paul talks about a church being a body, they'll all fit into place. And that one of the major things that this picture tells us and that Paul gets across is this, that all of us, everyone in the church, all of us have a unique part to play. Look, I move through my whole body, every bit of it. You try living through a bit of your body, you can't do it. Try leaving bits of your body out. The life inside of you won't allow you to do it. And it's exactly the same with the church. The Lord wants to move and contribute through all of us. So can you see that? You, you use your whole body, every part of it, and that is how it must be with us. Remember, we've seen again and again that as a church, we are the local family of God. We are God's family in Chigwell. And the thing about a family is that there are no unimportant members of a family. Have you got any unimportant members of your earthly families? Of course you haven't. Everyone in a family has something essential to contribute in order that that family can be whole. Now this is the thing I want you to be getting hold of just at this moment in the study, that body life or body ministry means that all of us have a part to play and that the Lord wants to move through all of us, every single one of us. Now, we've got to have a look now, a quick look, at an idea that has been in the church for 2,000 years, but that is completely wrong, a totally false teaching. And this teaching has done more damage to the church being able to be itself than anything else. And that we've got to have a look at this idea of a clergy or priesthood and laity divide. Very aware of it, the idea that there are kind of two levels in the church. There's the clergy or kind of like the ministers or the priests or whatever, and then you've got the laity, the hoity polloi in the pews. Now, let's first of all have a look at this thing about priesthood, because obviously when we're talking clergy language, we're talking about the churches whose leaders are actually ordained priests, or that is the idea. And they have a distinction between the clergy, the priesthood, all right, you've got them at the top, and then you've got the laity underneath. Now let's just have a look at this. Go to Revelation chapter 1 and verse 6. And this is John writing to uh, the churches in Asia in the book of Revelation. And... Um, We'll start from the end of verse 5. He says, To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. Now, he's not writing to a theological college. He's not writing to a monastery. He's writing to churches. He's writing to the people in the church. And what does he say? He says, God has made us a priesthood. Now, can you see there, we have the clear statement in the Bible that this talk about some people, the clergy are priests, but the laity aren't, is absolute rubbish. Here we have John referring to Christians en masse as being priests. Go to 1 Peter. 1 Peter in chapter 2. 
and be finding verse 4. And Peter says, come to him, i.e. Jesus, come to him, to that living stone, rejected by men, but in God's sight chosen and precious, and like living stones be yourselves built into a spiritual house. You remember, right back, study number one in this series, what is a church? We saw that church is where Jesus lives. He doesn't live in buildings, he lives in people. All right? He says, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And go down into verse 9. He says, but you are a chosen race. He's speaking to Christians, all Christians. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own people, that you may declare the wonderful deeds of him, blah, blah, blah. Now, can you see that what we have here, firstly, we are all priests. Every believer is a priest. Why? A priest mediates between God and other people. So why are we priests? If we're believers, we can all mediate between God and other people. How? Or well, we can bring them to Jesus. Can you see? We are all priests. But remember, these churches that have these false teachings, where they have a priesthood, you've got the priesthood, the boys in charge, and then you've got the laity. Now, so you've got priesthood, laity. Now, where does the word laity come from? I'll tell you. Laity comes from the Greek word laos. And would you believe that we've just read that verse in Peter? Let's read it again. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own people. And that word people is laos. That is where the word laity comes from. So here, what we've got is that according to the Bible, the priesthood equals the laity, and the laity equals the priesthood. Why is that? Because we are all priests, and because we're all people, we're all laity as well. So it's very important to realise that any idea of having priests and people is totally wrong. It goes against the fundamental burden of the Bible in the nature of the church. Let's just very quickly have a look at this word clergy, because obviously the priesthood in the kind of the, you know, the, uh, the words that they use is that the priesthood are the clergy. So where does this word clergy comes from? Again, it's a biblical word and we need to understand it. The actual Greek word for clergy is kleros, all right? And again, it's in 1 Peter. But go to 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 3. 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 3, and here he's talking to elders. And he's telling them how, you know, they ought to lead and that. He says, not as domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Now the word kleros, clergy, is in there. I'll tell you where it is. It's that phrase, uh, not as domineering over those in your charge those in your charge. That is the word kleros. And you see, the thing is that here, the word used for kleros isn't of the leadership, it's of the people that they are leading. And you see, the thing is that this word kleros, turning into clergy in English, originally it meant the people in the church. And what they did is they twisted the meaning and they made it mean the leaders in the church. 
I mean, it's absolutely crazy. It is a totally unscriptural usage of the word. The actual word means a lot or an apportionment. So that, for instance, if I was sharing out a load of dosh or something, if I had loads of money and I said, right, let's share out time. I mean, if I gave you your, your load of money, that is your kleros. That is what you have been apportioned. And so, obviously, elders are apportioned the people who they are leading. And therefore, the people, being an apportionment, are a kleros. So what we've seen here, that in order to keep these false systems and these false teachings going, churches actually are willing to corrupt the original meanings of the words in the Bible and change them to suit, to suit themselves. We've seen quite clearly we are all priests as believers. We've seen also that we are all laity. And we have seen as well that kleros, clergy, doesn't refer to people who are leading, least of all priests who are leading, because there aren't supposed to be any, but it refers, in fact, to the people. And so, therefore, can you see that any distinction between clergy or priesthood and laity is an absolutely wrong idea that does not come from the Bible. It's a division between the people in the church that should not be there. And you see, the point is that when you've got clergy and laity, you see, you've got the people who God can use, but you've got the priests, you've got the clergy who God can really use. And that is the false distinction that Satan has brought in. Okay, right, so there's the clergy, laity, and priesthood thingy. Um, but there are lots and lots of churches that don't have priests. They don't have clergy as such. I mean, if you spoke to a Baptist church, they say, oh, no, we don't have priests, we're all priests, you see. And there are lots of other churches, but they are still in an equally serious false teaching. And I'll tell you why. It's because those churches, all right, they don't have priests, they don't have clergy, they say we're all priests, we're all laity, but they have ministers, don't they? Sort of, he's a minister. <gasps> Gasp, all right? And again, you get this divide in churches. These are the ministers, <laughs> these are the people. Right, okay, so, so we better understand what a minister is, haven't we? we? We better understand what ministry actually is, biblically. And what we've got to do is ask, right, who exactly is in the ministry in this church? I mean, if you go, like, you know, to a local Anglican church or the local Baptist church or something like that, or, you know, the local Methodist church, or even the local Pentecostal church, you can ask, who is in ministry in this church, all right? And it's dead clear, because it's all the blokes with Rev in front of their name, isn't it? You know, <laughs> thoroughgoing little, you know, kind of, you know, priesthood and ministerhood and stuff like that. Now, we've got to ask, okay, who is in ministry in this particular church? Go to Ephesians 4. Now, this passage, you may have noticed, we've been in this an awful lot in this church life series, and we're going to be back to it again and again and again, because it's such an important passage. But Ephesians 4, verse 11 to 13. Right, okay. As is Paul speaking, he says, And his gifts were that some should be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. There is, if you like, the leadership. For the equipment of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the building up the body of Christ. So here they say, look, can't you see, Barry? So you've, you've got the ministers. 
And their job as ministers, all right, is that they build up the body of Christ, all right. They, they're there to equip the saints, and they are there for the work of the ministry. Now then, that's subtle, and I'll tell you why. Because in most of your English translations, you will see commas at various points in that sentence. Now, in the Greek, there are no commas. Let me read it again, this time leave, leaving the commas out, and the real meaning of the Greek comes across. And his gifts were that some, some shall be apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors and teachers, for the equipment of the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. Now, can you see the difference there? Leaders aren't there for sort of uh, equipping the saints and for the work of the ministry. The leadership are there are for equipping the saints to be doing the work of the ministry. Can you see? It's not saying that ministry is for the leaders. It's saying the leaders are there to make sure that everyone in the church is coming into the ministry that God has called them to. And so therefore here, that we can see that in regards to answering the question, who is in ministry in the church, we all are. All of us are in ministry. And leadership is there simply to equip us so that we can fulfill our ministry. But leadership is certainly not there to do the ministry and look after the plebs. Can you see? So therefore, who's in ministry in this church? All of us are. This actual word, minister, gets used in the Bible quite a lot, minister, ministry, etc., etc., and we use it in the church today quite a lot. But we want to find out what it actually means. You can use the same word in two different ways and give it a totally different meaning, and that is what we've done with this word. What is the Greek word here that our Bibles translate into minister? Well, it's the Greek word diakonos. Diakonos. Let's see it elsewhere and then find out what it means. Go to John chapter 2. John chapter 2. Now remember, we're just, you know, sort of like uh, realising the fact that there are churches that have ministers, and they say, he's our minister. Can you see? And we're asking, can that possibly be right? All right. John 2, chap uh, John chapter 2, verse 5. Now this is the story about, you know, Jesus being at the wedding of Cain, and we don't need to go into it, except we want this verse. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Where's diakonos? It's there in the plural, it's servants. Diakonos simply means a servant. Go to Mark 10, we'll see it again. Mark chapter 10, verse 42. Jesus called them and said, You know that those who are supposed to rule over the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. Now, everyone is absolutely clear on the fact that here Jesus is literally, he's talking about household servants. He says that is the status we've got. It's that word servants that is diakonos. That is what the word minister means. It means a servant. It doesn't mean someone who's big boss with a dog collar and a rev in front of his name. It doesn't mean that at all. It was the common Greek word for a common household servant. 
And what we have got to do is that we have got to totally divest this word minister of its professional connotation. Now, can you see that? Minister amongst Christians today has got a professional connotation. That is not what it means in the Bible in the slightest. And when you realise that these Charlies, who love to say, I'm the minister, or I'm a minister, if they realised that they were saying, I'm a servant, I bet they wouldn't say it half so much, would they? I mean, where's the glamour? Where's the respect? You know, I mean, sort of someone comes along, all right, and say, what's your job? I'm a servant. Oh, gosh, what a high position. Let me just, you know, do obeisance to you. But someone walks in with a dog collar, ring of confidence, I call it, for their inferiority complexes, walk in with one of them, and everyone's got to pay, you know, great respect towards them. Reminds me of the Pharisees. Remember what Jesus said? They love to get the salutations in the marketplaces. Let me ask you, why would a Christian want to have a position in the church with a special uniform, a special title, Rev, Right Rev, Most Rev, you name it, he gets it. Why is that? I'll tell you, it's pride. It's the pride and it is the arrogance of the Pharisees. And we see it thriving in Christianity, Christian churches all over the country. We have got to get rid of the professional connotation of that word. I am a minister in, that ch in this church, and so are each one of you. But for many Christians, because I'm an elder and because I'm a full-time Bible teacher, if I said I'm a minister in our church, they'd say, oh, yes, of course, <laughs> sir. <laughs> yeah? But if I said, and so are the rest of them, what? You've got 50 full-time ministers in your church? Can you say? They just don't understand what the word actually means. And we've got to make sure that the professional connotation leaves that word. We are all of us here, all of us ministers in the body of Christ. We are all, each one of us, part of this body. Now, remember what I said earlier about your body. You move through your whole body, don't you? We, each one of us, are part of the body of Jesus here. What does that mean? It means that Jesus wants to move through us all. Now, I've had a poke at the guys at the top, haven't I, who love their revs and their dog collars. But I'll tell you one of the things that keeps that going. It's not all their fault. They're responsible. They'll have to answer to God for it, all right? But the people have got to take responsibility and some of the blame. And you see, the reason is that there are lots and lots of Christians that they want a professional up the front because he does most of the work. And if a problem comes up in the church that no one can handle, well, it's not your fault. I'm not paid to do that. It's our minister's fault. Can you see? And so, therefore, it's not just the leaders who have got to get this sorted out in their hearts before God. It's the people who have got to get it sorted out in their hearts before God. Because when I say that all of us are ministers, Jesus wants to move through all of us, that's great, fantastic, praise the Lord, as people say. But what's the flip side of that? I'll tell you, each one of us are responsible for this church. Ah, that's different, isn't it? Each one of us are responsible for the person in the most trouble at the moment. Can you see? And you can't just palm it off to the professionals and say, this isn't my bother. It is your bother. Each one of us are ministers. Each one are responsible. Go back to Ephesians 4. 
I make no apology for labouring this because Paul laboured it as we're now going to see. Ephesians 4, we've already read from verse 11 down to verse 13 and in kind of the same sentence. Paul wrote very, very long sentences, you know. You weren't very good at English, or Greek, rather. Okay, and uh, let's start reading uh, from, um, from verse 13. He says, Until we all attain to the unity of the faith, to the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that's where each one of us individually is supposed to be going, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the cunning of men, by their craftiness and deceitful wiles. I'll tell you, the only reason that clergy have got away with it for so long is because Christians are still children, tossed to and fro, taken in by the deceit of men, the idea of a priesthood, crazy. He says, rather, speaking the truth in love, where to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by every joint with which it is supplied, when each part is working properly, makes bodily growth and upbuilds itself in love. Now look, he says every joint, and he says each part. Can you see? Every individual believer in a church is a channel through whom Jesus wants to be moving. Go to 1 Corinthians 12. Paul was very, very emphatic about this. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 7, when he deals with the gifts of the Spirit, he says, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. To each. Paul wanted to see every person being a minister in the body of Christ. Go down into verse 11. All these are inspired by one in the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. Can you see? We've seen at the beginning of this course that fellowship, when we looked at fellowship, the word doesn't just mean general sharing, it specifically means what you can contribute into that sharing. doesn't mean what you can get out of the sharing, it means what you can put into it. And at the very root of the word fellowship, the idea of being in fellowship, is what you as an individual can contribute to the rest of the fellowship. The Lord wants to move through me, and the Lord wants to move through you for the benefit of the rest of the fellowship. So can you see how important that is? There must be no one sitting back with their feet up. No one saying, well, of course, God isn't going to use me, I'm too bad. There must be none of that. There is no excuse for that kind of spiritual laziness. Jesus wants to minister through all of us. Now, what I want to do now is to, to bring out the main thrust, the most important thing about body life. And it's the key to understanding the dynamic behind church life. You see, because the point is, okay, we're a church, fine. Jesus is with us, fine. We have the Bible, we have our instructions, fine. We know what to do. But what I want to show you is that being a genuine Christian, part of a genuine church, living in obedience to the Bible and obeying its instructions is not of itself enough to be experiencing body life. Now, what do I mean? Well, I mean this. 
Remember, we are the body of Christ in Chigwell. Now, a healthy body, a normal healthy body, is directed by the head and not the body. All right? So that my body moves only when my head tells it to. There are loads and loads of things that my body could do. There are loads and loads of things that it would be absolutely right and proper for my body to do. But my body is only working properly when it's doing these things when my head is telling it to. If you have someone whose body is doing things without being directed by the head, you have someone in trouble. Now, can you see what I mean when I say that being a church and having our instructions in the Bible is not of itself enough. We've got to make sure that as a body, certainly we will never do anything that goes against the Bible, but even if we're doing something that is right according to the Bible, we've got to make sure that if we're a healthy church, that is happening because the head, Jesus, is leading us to do it. It's no use doing something, however right and biblical it is, if Jesus isn't leading you to. So this is what we've got to hold on to. This is the dynamic of church life. It's the fact that whatever we're doing, we are doing because we are the body and we are being directed to do that by the head, by Jesus. Now back to individual responsibility. Because remember that every member of the body is in direct contact with the head itself. Now there are those of you here who are familiar with the shepherding movement, or you know, the heavy authoritarian pyramid, you know, kind of thing, the real the nutters, alright, let's call it call them what they are, okay. Now, their teaching was this. They said that in a body like a finger isn't in direct contact with the head. The message has to be passed down to different parts of the body and the message is transmitted to the finger. Now what they say is this, that therefore the ordinary pleb in the pew, God, Jesus as the head, will direct the, lead, the apostles. They're the shoulders. They are, alright. And under them are the kind of the prophets and the, the local elders. They're kind of the bicep. Right. And, and the finger has no direct contact with the head itself. The instructions are passed down to the pleb, uh, to the finger, <laughs> through this chain of authority. So that the ordinary person in the church, it's not that they are in direct contact with Jesus. They get their instructions down the line of authority and eventually it reaches them. Now, the point is that that is not only wrong spiritually, that's not what the Bible teaches, but it is actually wrong biologically as well. Each part of your body has a nerve system of its own, all right? So the point is that when my brain says, finger, move, all right, oh, I agree, the nerve is passing down through my arm and things like that, but my finger has its own nerve system, and it goes straight to the finger. Now, it's important to realise that each one of us individually are in, or ought to be, in direct contact with the head himself. And of course, Jesus is the head.
Now, what that means is that individually and therefore corporately as a church, we must only move as the head as Jesus is himself directing. Now, when you read these books about body ministry and body this and body that, you know, all the charismatic bestsellers, uh, you tend to sort of come across, there's an awful lot of emphasis of, you know, like in the body, we're ministering to each other. It's the body ministering to the body. That is not actually true. True body ministry is the head ministering to the body. Can you see the difference? If I am used to bless you, that is not me as the body ministering to you as another part of the body. If I bless you, there can only be one reason, because Jesus has done it through me. I can't bless you, not of myself. And therefore, it becomes the head blessing the body through the body. We must get away from this idea of the body ministering to the body. As soon as the body starts ministering to the body, Everyone kind of, you know, they shoot home to get the Christian magazines with the questionnaires in to work out what their ministry is. And then they all jump back, you know, the next day, and everybody's doing their thing, and you've got absolute chaos. All right. It is not the body ministering to the body. It is the head. It is Jesus ministering to the body through the body. And that is a totally different thing. We've got to make sure that in all that we're doing, we're being directed and therefore energised by the head, by Jesus. That, and that we're not just the body doing its own thing, however scriptural, and therefore energised purely by the flesh or by the powers of our own personalities, knowledge or whatever. That won't do any good at all. So therefore, what the body does at any one moment is up to the head. It should not be the body doing things by itself. Let me give you a couple of examples. I mean, for instance, let's take growth and development. Now, as a church, obviously, in the future, we're going to grow and we're going to develop. We're going to mature. And that is absolutely right. But remember, we're a body of Christ. Now, in your body and in my body, your, the growth and development of your body is kind of, it's directed by the pituitary gland. Do you know where the pituitary gland is? It's in the head, there. It's just at the bottom of the head. In a human body, its growth and development is directed by the pituitary gland in the head. So therefore, for us as a church, we know that we'll grow. We need to grow. It's right that we grow. We know that we'll develop. We need to develop. It's right that we do that. But our growth and our development as a church must be as the head is directing and must not be merely because we think, oh, now here's something we can do and it might result in us growing. Can you see? It's got to be growth directed by the head and not merely something that has resulted from what the body has thought was appropriate and has done. Go to Colossians 2. See Paul specifying this? Colossians chapter 2, verse 18 and verse 19. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on self-abasement and worship of angels, blah, 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 and not holding fast to the head, Jesus. 
from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. Can you see, Paul there says that growth must come from the head, not from the body. It must come from the head and it must be a growth that is from God. Back to Ephesians 4. Ephesians 4 verse 15 again. Paul says, rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, growth, the head, Jesus, from whom the whole body, joined and knit together by every joint with which it is supplied, when each part is working properly, makes bodily growth and upbuilds itself in love. And there you see Paul saying that growth and development in the church has got to come from the head itself. Now, this is why it's so important that we realise that the church growing is far more than increased numbers. It is increased numbers, but it is far more than that. It is quite possible for a church to grow numerically and to find after a few years that it's not so much that it's grown as that it's got fat. Can you see? That is not genuine growth. We need to realise that any growth that we experience, including numbers, because God is going to bring numbers in, of course he is. There are loads of unbelievers out there who need to get saved. How are they going to get saved? They're going to get saved here in Chigwell through us. God's got other people as well, of course he has. But our concern is that the people that we're in contact with as a church, the unbelievers we mix with day to day, they are going to get saved through us. So obviously we are going to grow. But what we are not going to do is say, right, okay, boy, yeah, sure, we should have grown. Right, let's have a mission. Now, I'll tell you, in the church today, and I'm talking about the Bible-believing, spirit-filled church, there are church growth experts. I mean, they're the spiritual equivalent of, 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 of businesses, time and motion men. And they come in and they say, well, you're doing this wrong, you're doing that wrong. From our experience, do this and your church will grow. Can you see, this is a classic example of growth that isn't from the head. It's merely by business acumen in the flesh. And that is not the way to do it in the slightest. And what I'm going to say to you is that if churches can grow numerically, by getting up to that kind of rubbish, my goodness, how much more will we grow when we let the growth come from the head, from Jesus? Can you see? So we're not destining ourselves to be a small church for the rest of our lives. Quite the contrary. We're going to see God bring people in. But we want to make sure it's growth. We want to make sure it isn't just getting fat. And you remember when we were talking about evangelism in this series earlier on, we were saying that it's right that we evangelise, of course it is. But the point is, that has got to be being led by God. It's no use saying, right, low numbers, we need a mission. And I know churches, they have a big mission precisely when their funds are low. And I'm not kidding. I tell you that seriously. I have, I have been in churches when a mission has been suggested and arranged because the giving has got so low. 
More people would mean more giving, and I'm saying that based on my own personal experience and involvement with churches. I'm not making that up. Now, can you see, if God tells us to do organised evangelism, we will. If he doesn't, we won't. And other churches can bully us all they want. They can say, oh, you should have been in Mission 89, all they want. Jesus didn't tell us to be, so we weren't, all right? Tremendously important. Now, that aside, evangelism, there are many, many things as we grow as a church. We know that there are organ sort of uh, structures that the Bible gives the church which are right, and that they're not in place amongst us yet. And it's for this simple reason. It's very, very important that you don't even start doing biblically correct organisation unless the Lord is actually leading you. Can you see? Life it's perfectly possible that a church, I mean here we've got two elders, and I mean from the time that we became a church, but I mean we've been a fellowship for, for a long, long time before that, but by the time we became a church we had two elders, no problem. But it would be no problem whatsoever for a church to begin, and it might be two or three years before God raised up elders, that would be no problem. You won't bonk them over the head and say, well, you've got to have elders, you've got to have elders, because they might say, well, look, God hasn't led us into that yet. We haven't got anyone who's ready for a start. So there is biblically correct organisations. There are scriptural structures which must in time be put into place but we must ensure that they are never put into place until such time as the head, as Jesus, is leading us to do it. We must never move ahead of God. I mean, it's like as soon as we became a church, we didn't immediately start the love feast. A few weeks went by, and then the right time came, and we started it. That was absolutely right, okay. We have now started our prayer evenings every Friday. And yet for the first, well, for months as a church, we didn't have a prayer evening. Always knew that it was right to have one. Always knew that the Bible taught that it was right to have one. But when did we have one? When the time was right. Wouldn't it have been crazy if as soon as we started as a church, Robert and I sat down and said, right, okay, uh, and, 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 and we've got to have the prayer evening, boom. Can you see what a disaster it would have been if it had happened before we were ready? But the time came and Jesus led us and we started the prayer evening. And what so thrilled me is that that didn't come from Robert and I. That came through people in the church who said, it's time to do it. And Robert and I love that when there are people in the fellowship who say, hey, come on, this is what God is saying. And it all checks out absolutely biblically. So we said, right, let's dive in, let's get going. Can you see the difference between just doing it because the Bible says and doing it because the head is directing the body to do it? So that is a principle that we're going to come back again to later. And we'll see the way in the early church how structures that were right were only put into place sometimes years after the church actually started. Remember that a church, and we've seen this before, the church is an organism. It is not an organisation. And yet, if a church has the mentality of Right, the Bible says it, plonk, we do it now, and on go the structures, etc., etc. That church will turn into an organisation, a set of rules and regulations and structures. Even 
biblical structures can kill a church. You mustn't have unbiblical ones. There's no way, you know, I mean, people can't have a priesthood and say, oh, but that's what the head led us to do. Rubbish. We know that the head doesn't lead people to be priests because it goes against the Bible. Jesus will never lead us against the Bible. But the key to being an organism, we will certainly do what is scriptural, but we will do it when the head himself directs. Another example, and this kind of is a bit more, more personal, for each one of us, as we come together, the various times when we are. On a Sundays, okay, we come together, and in our worship, we, we, we sing, we start choruses, we, we pray, etc., etc. And that's fine, that's right, and that's good. The Bible teaches us that we must do that. But we must make sure, each one individually, that the Spirit is actually leading us to do it. I mean, what we're saying is, even if it's right, don't just automatically do it. You may be sitting here and think, oh yes, I would like to sing this chorus. Don't just automatically say, right, let's sing this chorus. Just stop. Is Jesus saying that he wants us to sing this chorus? You may be sitting there and, and you may sort of think, oh yes, I would like to pray about this. And it may be a fantastic thing to pray about, but just sit there. Is Jesus wanting me to pray about this. Just sit and just check it. We've got to make sure that we're not just doing things, even biblical things, just because the Bible says, or even worse, just to fill a silence. And there are people that in worship, as soon as there's a silence, they get awkward and they come up with something, chorus, prayer, you name it, they'll come up with it. Some even come up with their off-the-cuff prophecies, don't they? Just to fill a silence. That is no good at all. We've got to make sure that whatever we're doing it's because the head, Jesus, is directing us as an individual member of his body to do that at that particular moment. Right, go to, to 1 Corinthians 14, and in regards to when we come together for worship, etc., let's just remind ourselves what exactly is on offer. 1 Corinthians 14, and verse, first of all, verse 26. And Paul says, what then, brethren, when you come together, each one, I emphasize that, each one, Jesus wants to move through each one of us, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Go down to verse 31. For you may all prophesy one by one. Now, there's a few things, and they're on offer. They're available for each one of us to move in. All of them are right, but the thing is this. We've got to make sure we're doing them as the Spirit leads. So we mustn't say, well, the Bible says that each one you come along and you have a tongue. Right, okay, now it's time, umbala, masambula, you know. No, wait to see if the Lord is leading you. Can you see, this is the point, that we don't just want to end up doing these things, even though they're right, just because they're right, we need to learn to be responding to the Holy Spirit. Now, I accept that for many, many Christians, they're not sure one way or the other. Now, we've done this, when we did our spiritual gift series, we, we kind of looked at this kind of problem. And there are many, many Christians that, that the cap that fits them is that they're, they're likely to hold back. Now, if that's you, what I say is that if you're not sure, just say you're sitting there and, and, and you want to pray. If you're someone who finds it hard to contribute, then the rule for you is do it anyway. As long as you're not a monopolizer, 
do it anyway because it's only by doing it that you'll you'll learn and for instance it's like you may be sitting there you may have a prayer come into your heart all right or or a, a you know a whatever a chorus all right and you let it rip you pray or whatever and maybe for the first couple of times you know there's been a real real moving of the spirit fantastic everyone's just exalted and just worshiping god and then you do your bit you make your contribution the whole meeting goes <laughs> now can you see you're now learning from experience that you got that wrong right that wasn't the law but don't give up don't give up because maybe the next time the meeting's motoring along and the anointing's on it and you give your bit and everyone's saying praise the lord and it just lifts it that bit more you got it right can you see learning by experience so, if you're one of those people who tends to hold back, let it go anyway, and don't be worried about mistakes. Don't worry about that. That's no problem. Let it go anyway, and you'll so soon learn. But remember the rule here for monopolizers. These are the people who are good at prophesying. These are the people who kind of, they've always got something to share, haven't they? All right? At the drop of a hat, they're praying, they're prophesying, you name it, they're doing it. Always manage to be the centre of attention. Remember the rule, the biblical rule, if you're like that. It's shut up, all right? So, therefore, wear whichever cap fits. But one way or the other, we're going to be learning. Let's just say a bit about our prayer evening, because that started now on the Fridays, and it's going really, really good. Now, one of the reasons that sort of Robert and I didn't earlier on say, right, now we're going to have the prayer meeting, is because when it comes to having an evening of prayer as a church, it is really trebly, mega important that you only do it as God leads. And I'll tell you why. Because I have spent some of the most miserable hours of my life in prayer, in prayer meetings. They are awful. They are death. They are horrible. They are ghastly. I can't find sufficient adjectives to describe how abysmal the average church prayer meeting is that I've been to. They are awful. So with a prayer meeting, it's either the Lord or don't bother. Bring a sleeping bag, you know, bring your Superman magazines or something, I'll tell you, your personal stereo and a bit of Chuck Mangione to play because you haven't got a chance. Normal, rational... Pe I have seen people brainwashed in prayer meetings. I have seen normal people join churches and after 10 years of going to the prayer meetings, every Tuesday or Friday evening, whenever... It, do you know what happens? They come home from work and they turn into zombies. And I don't become human again until the next morning. Because it's the only way they can mentally and emotionally handle the prayer meeting. Prayer meetings are that deadly. And yet, what have we found on our Fridays? They're brilliant. They're brilliant. And you see, it's because we're making sure that we're operating on this principle. We are not just coming together as a church to pray with a prayer list. Oh, goodness, prayer lists. I mean, there are certain things that we know we have a responsibility to be praying for regularly, and the law certainly fits them in. But when we come together to pray, what we're doing, we're looking for the Lord's burden. We're looking for the Lord to set the tone of the evening. We're looking for the Lord to be leading us into what we're praying about. And we found, usually, there have been one or two hiccups, but we're learning. It doesn't matter, we're learning. All right. Now, we've ended up rolling around on the floor on one or two occasions now, but it doesn't matter. We're learning. But we're finding that the flow is there. That you can be sitting there and we're all praying for something, and then something comes into your head, you have a burden, and bang, someone else prays that exact same thing and carries everyone with them. Now, that is how a prayer evening 
should work. So therefore, don't just pray because you're at the prayer evening, but say, Lord, lead us in this prayer. All right, that is the way to do it. This is body life. It's the body moving spontaneously, moving freely at the direction of the head. And remember, back to this, a body cannot be healthy unless all its members are functioning properly. My foot was not functioning properly on Sunday. By the way, those who knew that I had an accident on Sunday, it's considerably better, oh, all right? Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I kind of, I, I fell jumping over the bed and I did my foot in and ended up down at the hospital. But uh, yeah, it was a good news because I, I caught Blinda that night. Right, okay, no, and uh, you know, my foot has not been working properly and my whole body has known about it. If your foot isn't working properly, your whole body isn't. So we've got to make sure that as individuals, as members of the body, we are all functioning properly, which means that we've got to find each one of us, our function in this body. And uh, in Ephesians 4, verse 12, we saw the way that leaders are there to equip the church, to equip them to do the work of the ministry. And that word equipment in the Greek, it's katartismos, and it means a fitting in place. Fitting something. And you'll remember that part of the pictures we've seen that Paul uses, he talks about joints and ligaments and bones. You know, and that Greek word could be used like if a doctor had to reset a bone, if someone had broken their leg. That's the word. You, you fit it back into place. And we've all got to find out where we fit in the body of Christ and what our function is. Now, I'm not going to now do what some, you know, sort of Bible teachers do and say, right, I want you all to go home tonight and I want you to find out what your function is in the body of Christ. And I'm not going to hand out these questionnaires where you fill them in and, and according to the number of points you get, they tell you what your particular ministry is. But the point is that each one of us, we need to be finding out all the time what our part in the body is. And if we're open, God will be showing us. And your function may change. Yeah, that's why it's no use saying, well, this is your ministry and that's it. You know, that is your lot. We don't want to hear you doing anything else. It's flexible as the Lord leads. And remember that this body life principle is not just for our meetings either. This body life principle should be working every day of our lives, just generally out and about. I mean, it's like, for instance, we know that, uh, you know, there are times when we can give each other practical help. Now, believe me, if you're moving in body life and really listening to the Lord, I guarantee that you'll actually become aware of people who need practical help that you can give that you wouldn't have been aware of if you weren't moving in this, can you see? God is quite capable of kind of bringing, you know, making you aware of, of practical help that's needed that you can provide. Hospitality. I mean, that's a ministry. We're going to, later on in this series, we're going to be looking at all the ministries that God has set in the body of Christ and finding out just how many of them there are. I mean, I'll tell you, one or two or three of them at least are going to be each person's here because there's so booming many of them. They're so comprehensive. But hospitality is one. Throw your house open. But the thing is, say, Lord, who do you want? Who do you want us to invite round? We can have someone round uh, on Thursday night. We're not doing anything. Lord, who should we have? And I guarantee you'll be inviting the people round who need to be round. A number of times, Blinge and I have experienced this. Talk about getting it dead right. It's amazing. But that's body life. Because you're only doing what the head, what Jesus, is leading you to do. So in whatever 
these practical areas, day to day in our lives together out there in the world, make sure that this principle is kind of working. That when you're doing something, even if it's right, be doing it at the direction of Jesus. Not just, well, the Bible says it, so I better do it, you know, mo mo. Make sure you're moving in this body life. And, of course, the point is that the members of a body, my body, my fingers, my legs, my toes, you name it, that they do their specific jobs in unison, in harmony, so that the whole body can move as the head directs. It's that unity. Now, let me ask you a question. What is the purpose of my body? I mean, I've got a body, what finally is its purpose? I'll tell you, it's so that people can meet me in it. That is the purpose of my body. And people have got a far greater chance of meeting me in my body if my body's doing what I tell it to. I mean, for instance, say someone phones up and say, Barrister, you know, I want to come round and see you tonight. I say, fine, you come round, seven o'clock. Then at five to seven, my body decides to go out for a walk. I mean, they'd have a job meeting me, wouldn't they? Can you see? So, what's the point of our body? It's so people can meet us in it. Now then, we are the church, we're the body of Christ. What is the purpose of us as a church being the body of Christ? It's so people can meet Jesus in us. Can you see? Now, how are people going to meet Jesus in us? If they kind of come in, and here we are as the body, you know, sort of kind of busy, 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 doing, doing, doing. No sign of the head. No sign of Jesus being there, because the body is doing its own thing. I don't know if you've ever seen the rather hilarious sight of, you know, like the chicken with the head chopped off, you know, running around the farmyard. If you, you know, if you, if you get a very sharp machete, and if you get someone, to, I haven't done this by the way, and I'm not now condoning blood sports, but I do think it's funny, that if you get someone to chase a chicken in your direction, and you've got a very sharp knife, and as the chicken passes by with the knife, you chop its head off clean. Do you know what? That chicken will keep running for quite a few minutes. The body is working even though the head isn't there. Now, isn't it sad, the number of churches that are like that? They are headless bodies <laughs> running around all over the place. No sign of the head whatsoever. Now, can you see, we've got to make sure, we've got to make sure that as the body, we're together with the head. Because I'll tell you, if your body ever parts company with your head, that's bad news. And we don't want that to be true of ourselves. Go back to 1 Corinthians 12 now, because it's in this context that we've got to look at those verses in between the ones that we read earlier. Now, first of all, we'll start reading from verse 14, and we'll read a few verses first. This is what he says. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body, that wouldn't make it any lesser part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I don't belong to the body, that would not make it any lesser part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell? Where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, it reminds me of a joke that, my dog's got no nose, how does he smell terrible? But as it is, God arranged the organs in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single organ, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. Now, what we're seeing here is that Paul is saying, look, in a body there are a diversity of functions. There are different functions, alright? And all the functions are needed. Now, what a lot of Christians do 
is that they say that they, the way they think is, they think, well, I haven't got what they consider to be a dramatic ministry. Oh, this yearning for dramatic ministries, it's destroying the church. That they think that because they haven't got one of these dramatic upfront ministries, they're no good. So they just sit there. Oh, God can't use me. I, I can't teach the Bible. I, I can't heal the sick. I, I can't work miracles. Do you know what I mean? I can't win Russia for Jesus. You know, and so they just sit there. You know, they just sit there. Now, what Paul's saying, he says, look, now hang on, hang on a sec. Because you haven't got one function, doesn't mean that your function isn't valuable. Of course it is. Do your function. We've got to make sure there are no inferiority complexes. You might have what you think to be a piddling little ministry. I'll tell you, there's no such thing. There's no such thing. And if you're put out because you haven't got an upfront ministry, that's pride. That's pride. Anyone who wants an upfront ministry, all right, can be wanting that because of pride, all right? But someone who's not satisfied because they haven't got an upfront ministry, that is definitely pride. Can you see? So all the functions are needed. There must be no inferiority complexes. Let's move on. Verse 21. And he says, the eye, now he moves on to a kind of a different, different thing here. The eye cannot say to the sat hand, I have no need of you. Nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body which seem to be weaker are indispensable. And those parts of the body which we think less honourable, we invest with the greater honour and our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, modesty which our more presentable parts do not require. Now he's talking here about people who are saying, well I'm, I'm such an important part of the body that I don't need the rest of the body. He's talking about the big heads, isn't he? That's what he's doing here. Look, in this fellowship there are going to be no ministerial royal variety performers, alright? We've got enough of them in the body of Christ. You know, people who take the stage and they do their thing, look at me, look at me, look at me. They are the very people that Paul is talking about. One of the things that I find thoroughly hateful in the church today, and so does the heart of God, is the way that you see the emphasis on the whole time of leaders getting together with leaders. Now, I'm not saying there's never a time for leaders of churches not to get together. I mean, that's okay, that's fair enough. But I was talking to someone a while ago, and as soon as he you know, found out that I was an elder in a fellowship, the first thing he asked me is, do you get together with the leaders of the other churches locally? I said, no, don't know any other leaders of any other churches locally who get together with me for a start. But the point is, I thought, what, what lies behind that question? And I'll tell you. Have you noticed the way that the big boys always flock together? I mean, you notice the guys who write the books that are always in the top ten. You read their books and you'll always see that the author of one mentions when he was having dinner with the author of the other. Real little club they've got going. And I notice this emphasis. And what it turns into is this. You end up with leaders who only fellowship with other leaders. You're back to the clergy laity divide. And I'll tell you why that is so awful. They're saying that the people they're leading can't meet their needs. That they can only be ministered to through other leaders that, that is ridiculous. That's absolutely... That is this, you know, that is the, you know, one part of the body saying, I don't need the rest of the body. Uh, we've got to make sure there's absolutely none of this 
here. Upfront ministries are not superior in any way to the less visible ministries. Now, can you see that? Bible teachers are not more important than people who aren't Bible teachers. Healers are not more important than people who aren't healers. We've got to be absolutely clear about that. Ministry is a function. It's not a position. Look, is your mouth more important than your kidney just because it gets seen and heard a bit more? Can you see? I mean, I've met some people in ministry and I've come to the conclusion that their ministry is that they're the mouth of the body. That's all they are, a mouth. Talk, 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 words, words, words. Where's the life? Where's the relationships? Can you see? But they're big leaders. And they're in fellowship with other big leaders. No, we've got to understand the kidney, which is never seen. You never see the function of the kidney. It's just there doing its job, really invisible. Can we say that that is, more, that that is less important than the mouth, just because the mouth gets seen and heard? That would be absolutely ridiculous, wouldn't it? Cancer is one of the things that attacks a body. And cancer is where one part of a body is growing out of control relative to the rest of the body. Cancer is when one part of the body is getting bigger and bigger and bigger at the expense of the rest of the body. I've seen that time and time again. A fellowship, maybe they have someone who leads amongst them. Maybe the person has a ministry, maybe it's healing, or maybe they're a Bible teacher, and people say, well, this guy really blesses you know, us. And then slowly, Satan's trap unfolds. And that person in that fellowship, they start going out to other churches, and that's nothing wrong with that. No, no problem with that at all. But then it starts to get bigger, doesn't it? Then it's kind of national. Then it's international. And the fellowship has lost a leader because the leader is moving on to bigger things. He's an international minister now. Again and again I've seen this. People who were called into a church and they get big in ministry. So then they eventually drop the church. That is cancer. Can you see? They've left their roots. That's ridiculous. And we've got to make sure that there are no big boys in this fellowship. Cancerous lumps must be removed from a body. Wouldn't it be ridiculous if someone, a body, developed cancer and the rest of the body is respecting it and kind of applauding that cancer because it's so big and performing so well? That'd be crazy. And this is what we're doing in the body of Christ. We're actually respecting and we're applauding the cancers in the body of Christ which are slowly destroying us. Now, can you see how awful that is? Can you see what folly that is. We've got to make sure that there are no big boys together, uh, big boys around at all. We are all equally important and we all have a part to play. Now just look at verse 25 and he says that there may be no discord in the body and that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honoured, all rejoice together. Just go back very quickly to Ephesians 4, 16. Ephesians 4, 16. And he says, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by every joint with which it is supplied, when each part is working properly, makes bodily growth and upbuilds itself in love. That 
is the final test of whether or not we are functioning in body life. And it's because there will be a continuous increase in love for every member of the body. Can you see? There will be no question of people coming to preeminence. No question whatsoever that there will be an increase in love for every part of the body by every part of the body. I mean, think about it. Have you ever burnt your finger? All right, or hurt your finger or hurt your hand. Boy, did I hurt my foot on Sunday morning. Yeah. Now, what do you do if you hurt your hand? I'll tell you, it's instinctive. If you hurt your hand, you immediately pull it into the rest of the body, don't you? Have you noticed that? If you hurt your hand, you pull it in to the rest of your body to comfort it. Do you see? It's an instinctive reaction, isn't it? Now, in a fellowship where true growth and body life and love is working, what it means is that anyone who needs help will be automatically a knee-jerk reaction spiritually brought in even more to the centre of the fellowship so that they can be cared for and so that they can be loved and so that they can be looked after. Now, that is the test. There must be no one left out at all. There must be no favouritism or anything like that at all. So then, there's that care. If one part of the body suffers, then the whole body is suffering. And I'll tell you, Sunday morning, it was only my foot that got really hurt. But I'll tell you, the rest of my body knew all about it. And that's how it's got to be with us. If one of us is, is, is in sorrow, going through really hard times, then the rest of us can't just blot that part of the body out and jolly our way along praising the Lord. I'm not saying stop praising the Lord, but I'm saying make sure that we're there giving that part of the body all the help that it needs. And also, the flip side of that is this. If my mouth enjoys dinner, and boy, my mouth enjoyed my dinner tonight. If your mouth enjoys dinner, so does your stomach. Can you see? No one part of the body is isolated from the rest of the body in its experience. And so likewise, in this fellowship, one blessed, all blessed. Here's he. If someone gets a real blessing, we should all be rejoicing. It shouldn't be as it so often is. Oh, God, God don't bless me like that. I've been praying that God would do this for me for years. He comes along and after three weeks, God does it for him. Can you see? That is creeping envy. Envy is the sign of just sheer selfishness. If someone in the fellowship gets blessed, then that means that all of us are going to be blessed, sharing that blessing. Absolutely thrilled for them. Now then, this is what happens when the dynamic behind ourselves as a church is body life. It's responding at all times, individually and therefore corporately as a body, it's responding to what the head is doing. It's responding to what Jesus himself wants to do. And remember, my body is there so I can do what I want through it. And remember, not just in regards to church life, but the whole of the Christian life. We saw this again and again in the Salvation series. What is the Christian life? The Christian life is Christ in you. It is not us living for Jesus. It is Jesus living through us. 
And church life is not us corporately living for Jesus, it's Jesus living through us corporately as a church. That is body life. Right, next time we move on to phase three in this series and we turn our attention to the subjects of church government, eldership and authority. And we pick that up next time.